right, this morning I want to um, I want to exercise some pastoral privilege and forego our study in Scripture, forego our teaching time. Um, I do appreciate Jerry's reminder this morning of uh, the focus of last Sunday's message from John 17, uh, and also the reminder of um, if you haven't had an opportunity to acquire and to read a copy of the book Knowing God, um, it was a good it was a good reminder to do so. I would certainly encourage you to do so. Uh, what I want to share this morning is more along the lines of a personal testimony. Some of it having to do with me personally, but uh, some of it having to do with someone close to me. And I want to share it from the standpoint of just sharing a, a word of exhortation based upon a perspective uh, in the consideration of one life lived in this world. Um, along the lines of what Jerry actually shared, what Jerry's exhortation was focused on was really with the, with the whole imagery of the, the art gallery and the frames and, and the portraits that, that should have been uh, held in those frames. Uh, this, uh, what's on my heart, I think, would, will fit very well with that. Um, but I want to ask the young ones among us to particularly pay attention this morning. I know sometimes with the kind of teaching that I do and uh, just my, my delivery style, which is not terribly exciting, um, I know that uh, sometimes it's just easy to kind of check out midway through. I would just encourage you, try to hold your attention this morning. Um, this is a message I wouldn't want you to check out on. Um, so my main point, what I'm after this morning is this. Everyone that's sitting here this morning is alive, and we're alive for one reason only. We're alive by God's grace, and we're alive for God's purpose. We are given one life to live and one life only. The scripture tells us that it's appointed for man to, to die once and then Following that death experience, we face God's judgment. And what matters most on that day, what will matter most on that day, that final day when our lives will be evalu evaluated not by ourselves, not by others that are close to us and care for us, and not by any, any other person or stranger other than the Lord himself, what will matter most and will matter for all of eternity is what we did with the life that we were given by God's grace and what it ultimately meant. So the reason this was on my heart this morning is that uh, this Thursday, a couple of days ago, uh, Thursday afternoon, my father, Kenneth Bourgeois, most of you never had the opportunity to meet him. I think a few of you did. Uh, my father died Thursday afternoon, one month short of his 98th birthday. So he lived a long and full life, 97 years old, almost 98. He lived a, an interesting life in my perspective. I want to share with you some of the highlights of his personal life story for just a few minutes. He was born in 1926. I wasn't there, of course, 
but it was a different world. I'm, I'm a history reader. I've read a lot about that moment in history in this country. It was eight years only after World War I ended that my dad was born. And just three years before the, the great economic downturn that took place that was known as Black Friday when the stock market crashed and the nation entered into a 10-year-long period known as the Great Depression. So from 3 to 13, he lived the, the Great Depression experience, and it certainly affected him, his family, his life circumstances. He was born down in the very southernmost part of Louisiana, below New Orleans. Uh, really, it's an area that's, that's mostly... Um, marshland. Um, it, it's called the Bayou. He was born in um, a little town called Raceland and then early on his family moved to Homa and uh, we still have family there. I, I've been told I have, I've, I've visited there twice, I've met some of my family but I've been told that I have hundreds of cousins in uh, that part of Louisiana but most of whom I will never actually meet. As a young boy, he, um, he spent a lot of time outdoors. In, in those days, there was no, no uh, television, no internet. Uh, for entertainment, you could read books, and he did read some. But he spent most of his time outdoors on just adventures. And um, also for the practical needs of his family, he, was, he learned how to hunt early on. And on a daily basis, he would be sent out by his mother to hunt for squirrels, uh, not to make pets out of them, but to hopefully get some meat in the family pot in order to um, have some protein in their diet because they couldn't afford to go to the store and buy any. Um, possums, which were a little bit easier to catch because they're a little bit slower, and rabbits. And uh, he was pretty successful at uh, supplementing the family's diet with some extra uh, caught wild protein. Uh, when he was very young, I don't know the exact age, I'm guessing somewhere in the vicinity of five years old, his parents divorced, uh, my grandmother and grandfather. Uh, my grandfather wasn't a faithful man to his wife, and as a result, they got divorced, and then Soon after that, his mother moved from Louisiana, leaving my dad with his grandparents to raise him. And she moved to Los Angeles area, this area, to Burbank, um, North Hollywood area. And she did so in order to try to break into the movies, which was a big deal back in those days. She was a skilled dancer, and so she was looking for a role in one of the, the dancing movies. There was a, a period in Hollywood where dancing movies were, were very popular. Um, so she broke in as a, uh, what was called a Zigfield Follies dancer. And uh, so made a life for herself here. And a few years later, when he was around 12 years old, uh, my dad uh, got on the train and uh, traveled out here and joined his mom, lived with his mom out here and grew up in his teenage years here in Los Angeles. Because she was involved in the movies, he was very impressed with the movies, with movie stars. Um, he 
went to see whenever he could every movie that was playing at the local theater. Um, he was fascinated by celebrity, movie celebrities. He met, had the opportunity to meet several of them. I think the, the most famous one that he ever met that he later told me stories about was he had an opportunity to meet John Wayne. He was very impressed by that meeting. Uh, my dad was a smaller man. Uh, you, you wouldn't know it by looking at me. I'm somewhat of a larger man. Uh, he was only 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, um, at his full height. And uh, he had a little bit of a, what's known as a small man syndrome. I don't know if you know about that, where he felt picked on at times and, and wanted to respond. Uh, so he, he took up boxing. He found there was a, a local boxing gym that was run in North Hollywood in those days by a former world heavyweight champion who owned and ran this uh, boxing gym and so he he learned how to box and then eventually did pretty well with that eventually in, in his teenage years he reached the golden gloves level which is a, a fairly accomplished uh, young boxer um, in 1944 though of course the United States was at war in World War II he was 18 years old and he enlisted in the Air Force as soon as he was eligible to do so uh, he was trained to be a gunner in a B-24 bomber. He was assigned to the Pacific Theater of War, which was over the Pacific Ocean, where we were fighting primarily against Japan in that area. And uh, he was given the assignment of being a belly gunner. And I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with how that worked, but in those old um, bombers, they would have on, on the belly, on the underside of the plane, they would have a, a, a clear uh, plastic kind of bubble that had a machine gun sticking out of it. And um, usually the smallest man on the plane was chosen to crawl into the belly of the plane in order to just be able to squeeze into it. It was a small little confined space. And then any planes that were attacking from below, the belly gunner was expected to fend off those planes. Uh, he did survive, of course, his experience in the war uh, came through that. After the war, uh, the most significant thing that happened to him next is he, at a young age, he was in his early 20s at this point, he developed um, a severe case of arthritis. Uh, to the point where he was, for a short time, relegated to a wheelchair. He couldn't even walk successfully. Uh, he found a, a doctor in Glendale by the name of Dr. Pottinger. He was, uh, he was fairly well known in those days as one of the earliest natural doctors who uh, wasn't just uh, uh, treating people with medications, but with changing their diet and learning how to... Uh, how to address issues in a more natural way. And so he went to Dr. Pottinger's clinic. He stayed there for some six months. And uh, by the end of that six months, he was fully healthy, fully restored. And uh, from that point on, he became very health focused for the rest of his life. He followed um, after Dr. Pottinger, uh, there was a famous uh, diet book that uh, was very popular back in those days, written by a woman by the name of Adele Davis. 
Uh, he, he learned her diet and followed it stringently. And um, then from there, he became a bodybuilder in order to just uh, strengthen his physical well-being. He found a gym in Hollywood. Uh, I think he chose this gym because it was known as the, the gym, the bodybuilding gym to the stars. Um, he, there were a lot of, um, uh, whenever movie studios wanted to uh, kind of buff up the, the leading men in the movies, they would send them to Vince's gym in order to gain some muscle mass. So uh, he encountered several movie stars there, including Clint Eastwood and a few others, and um, kind of became uh, Vince's, uh, Vince who owned the gym, uh, he kind of became his, his go-to fix-it guy. Uh, my dad was uh, very mechanically oriented. He had a gift that I certainly don't have in terms of being able to see something that needed to be fixed and knowing how to go about doing that. So he was always fixing the equipment in the gym. Um, around the year 1950, I don't know the exact date, he met my mother and they fell in love. They married. Um, they had my sister who's five years older than me. And then in 1958, they had me. And then in uh, 1955, they had me. And then three years later in 1958, my mom and my dad divorced. The reason they divorced, I don't know the whole story. Uh, it wasn't due to unfaithfulness on either part, as far as I know. Uh, it was mostly that my dad was just very difficult to live with in terms of how my mother later described it to me. He was, uh, he was very traditional in his view of male leadership in the home, and my mother was not. And uh, so that created some, as you can imagine, some friction. And uh, my dad never learned uh, the skills that, by the grace of God, I've learned in terms of how to, um, how to address issues in a way that doesn't blow the circumstance up. So he effectively blew up the marriage by his demanding ways. And so they, they went their separate ways in 1958. Um, in terms of, in terms of uh, career, uh, he went to work for Lockheed in Burbank as a, as a machinist. Uh, he worked there nearly 40 years, uh, eventually became the lead machinist in his area of the plant and uh, kind of the go-to man for the most difficult jobs there. Um, you know, there, it was back in old days when OSHA, I don't know if you're familiar with OSHA, but it's basically a government agency that, that makes sure that workplaces are supposed to be safe for those who work there. OSHA hadn't even been invented yet, and they were working with, Lockheed was working with all kinds of new uh, experimental materials because the planes that they were building like the SR-71 Blackbird, which used to be our number one spy plane as a nation. They were using new carbon fibers and grinding those, and there was all kinds of material dust in the air that the, that the people were breathing in without using masks or, or any kind of uh, air filtration system. I honestly don't even know how he survived the years that he worked at Lockheed. I, I think it did have later some effect on his um, on his health and his well-being, but you know he lived 97 years, so um, he, he he had a hearty constitution. Um, 
he drove a Austin Healey sports car. How many of you ever heard of an Austin Healey? It's like, I, I, I don't even remember the last time I saw an Austin Healey. They're very rare now. It was a little, little bitty sports car, real, real sporty. Um, he drove that. He was part of an Austin Healey club. They went for drives together, and they would race against uh, the MG Club, which was another little sports uh, car club. He, he, you'll, you'll see in, in the next thing I'm going to share, he was really into racing. He loved speed. Uh, he also took up motorcycle racing. He, the kind of racing he did wasn't on a track. He raced motorcycles in the desert, uh, the desert between... Barstow and Las Vegas. Um, back in those days, they don't, they don't allow it anymore. This race has been outlawed because of damage to the desert. But uh, in the old days, and I had the opportunity to go with him to watch him race in one of these races, what they would do is, and it would be about a thousand racers, and they would go out to just outside of Barstow, and they would point to Las Vegas, where Las Vegas was located, and they would say, okay, everybody line up. So they would have literally a thousand motorcycles lined up and they would you know, shoot off a, a pistol and the first person to make it to Las Vegas won the race. And they're not racing by roads, they were just racing across the desert, you know, right through bushes and, and many, many times my dad broke bones, uh, had many accidents. Uh, the, the one that he used to tell me uh, repeatedly the story of was um, he was going full blast, like 90 miles an hour across the desert, and suddenly there was a, a gully that he couldn't see before he was there. And the motorcycle launched out, and he was hopeful that he could make it to the other side of the gully, but ended up like just ramming into the far side of the gully and um, breaking uh, multiple bones in his body. But he would always recover, and he would always go back and, and race some more. His uh, greatest claim to fame was he, he did this race maybe a dozen times. Uh, once a year, they would have this big event. And his claim to fame was in his last race, he uh, won second place overall in the race. Um, losing to a man because my dad's story was he stopped to re relieve himself and the, the racer that was just behind him passed him as he was relieving himself and um, he chased him all the way uh, to Las Vegas but never was able to catch him. Um, the other part of his stories that he liked to tell about his racing days was that he one time raced not in that particular race, but another similar motorcycle desert race. He raced against Steve McQueen, who was a, a motorcycle racer as a hobby, and um, he took great pleasure in finishing ahead of Steve McQueen. He um, said he was a nice guy, though. Uh, he, my dad was very hobby-focused. Uh, his life consisted of, for the most part, going to work every day as a machinist, getting off work, and all of his free time he would spend doing his hobbies and when he had a day off he would spend that time doing his hobbies. He had a variety of hobbies. He was a, a, an accomplished leather worker. 
He, uh, he won some awards when he was younger as a leather worker. Uh, he was a, a kite builder and participated in many of the, the kite flying contests and kite building contests that took place down by the beach. Um, eventually became what I would consider to be a master kite builder. Uh, you know, had articles and, and whatnot written about his, uh, his kites that he had built. He was into RC radio-controlled airplanes and, and particularly RC gliders, the ones that fly without a, an engine in them. Um, when he retired, he, uh, he liked to teach. He, um, he trained people in how to work out at the gym, trained bodybuilders. He trained people how to fly RC planes and made some money on the side doing both of those things in his retirement years. And then in his latter years, he added also um, doing origami, Japanese paper folding. And uh, he did cardboard art, which would be, he would just have a, an idea like uh, he built the, um, the, what's the famous Zeppelin? That, Hindenburg. The Hindenburg. He built the, Zin, the Hindenburg out of cardboard. He built the Titanic out of cardboard. And they look just like the original. So... Let me share this passage. Uh, this is from Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8. Um, remember also, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come. The evil days here are not so much uh, days of trial and tribulation, but what we would call old age. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now, in terms of my relationship with my dad, when I was very young, and again, I only lived with him for three years before uh, my mom and father divorced. So I have very little memory. I mean, does anybody here remember stuff that happened in their first three years? I, I only have a couple of very faint and faded memories. I have one memory of being thrown in the air by my dad and caught repeatedly. You know, as probably a, I don't know, one-year-old or something. But he, he was strong. You know, he was a bodybuilder, so he used to throw me way up in the air and then catch me. And my mom later told me that she was really not happy about it. <laughs> but um, he enjoyed it, and he said that I enjoyed it, so he continued to do it. Um, I remember sitting behind the wheel of his Austin Healey, uh, really, really young, and driving it in my imagination. Um, when I was seven years old, my mom had remarried uh, to my stepfather, of course, and then they moved for his work to Dallas, and of course, my sister and I moved with them. So he, my dad remained here in Burbank, I was in Dallas, uh, from 7 until 20. So for those 13 years, I, I think I only saw him twice. 
where he made an effort to come out and, and visit on, a, on, a, on his way through to Louisiana to visit his family. Um, I don't have any strong memories except for one. In one of his visits, he had purchased for me a, an RC radio-controlled car, a racing car. And he took me to a local racing car facility where others would put their car on the track and then with a, with a little control box, you would race it around the track against other RC racers. And I can remember he gave me a short lesson on how to do it. And then the, I, he, he wanted me to participate in the race and the race started and I couldn't control the car. And I remember the car, it was, he probably spent some good amount of money in those days on buying this car. And the car flew off the track and crashed. And I basically ruined the car. And uh, he wasn't yelling at me, but he was, he was certainly frustrated that I wasn't able to control the car in the way that he thought I should. And I just, I, I remember that. I remember that experience of him being frustrated with me and me being frustrated with my inability to control the car. But that's the only thing I remember from the ages of seven to 20. Then um, when I was 20 years old, I moved back on my own from Dallas back here to the Los Angeles area. Um, we had some interactions at that time. The first one was really a dramatic one, and it was uh, very challenging and difficult. I didn't know the Lord at age 20. I didn't come to know the Lord until I was 24. But at 20 years old, when I returned here, I went over to where he and my grandmother shared a home together and knocked on the door and my grandmother answered and I asked to see my dad and she told me he's not there, he's in the hospital. I wasn't aware of why he had been in there or that he had even been there. And she mentioned to me that he wasn't well, that he had checked himself into the Glendale Hospital. There's a big uh, Adventist hospital in Glendale. Um, he had checked himself into the mental ward of the hospital. So, of course, I drove over to um, see him, to visit him, and I was shocked when I saw him because he was like a zombie. Uh, not a, he didn't even recognize me. Uh, just He was, like, gone. And I found out, talked to the doctor that was treating him and found out that he had checked himself in just struggling with anxieties. And possibly it had to do with the stuff he had been uh, breathing in at, at Lockheed, and possibly it was some delayed um, issues from his experiences in the war. I don't know for sure. He never knew for sure. But um, they put him on some very strong medication, stronger than it should have been, and basically turned him into a zombie. So over the course of the next two or three weeks, I would visit him every day. And um, I realized he wasn't getting any better. He was, he was just staying the same. And it, he was in a non-recoverable state. So I made the decision at that point to do what I could to try to rescue him. And I checked him out of the hospital against the doctor's recommendation. I had to sign some special papers in order to do so. And I brought him home. And um, I just stayed with him for the next three months and uh, put him on a good diet. We took him for walks every day, uh, 
stayed up with him during the night when he was struggling. And eventually he recovered and he recovered 100% to a normal life and a healthy life. And he was always very appreciative uh, for the years that followed for the time I had spent with him and the help I had given him. And he, at that point, began whenever he would introduce me to people that he knew, he would tell them from that point forward, uh, he pointing to me, he would say, he's the dad and I'm the son. Yeah. We had a, we had a uh, San Francisco trip together that I remember. He had a big kite festival there that he was participating in. Uh, that was a, a super pleasant memory, watching him fly his amazing kites uh, along with the hundreds of others that were in the festival. Um, he later taught me how to work out. He taught me basics of, of how to use the equipment at the gym so that I didn't hurt myself, uh, which helped me for years that followed. Um, we, once I came to know the Lord, which is 1979, now I'm 24 years old, uh, we took a long drive within the first month of my being a Christian. We took a long drive to Louisiana, to Houma, to visit my grandfather, whom I had never met. And um, I enjoyed that trip with him. It was, uh, it, was, uh, it was a good time to spend with him now with a, a new perspective in my heart and mind as a believer. He and I always maintained a friendly relationship. There was never any friction between us. My sister and my dad had a different kind of relationship. They, they always had friction between them. But for him and I, we always got along. Um, even into his latter years, and uh, I think our relationship in that way deepened. Uh, I, became his, I became his caregiver in his last 10 years, um, just helping him with, you know, I became his driver once he stopped driving. I would bring groceries to him. Um, I would, you know, pick out places. He ended up living in two care facilities, um, picking out those spots, and then, of course, uh, coming to visit him regularly and spend time with him. Um, in his very last days, uh, this is maybe a week ago now, um, I was visiting him on a daily basis just because I knew he was getting close. And the last conversations I had with my dad, um, he, he, this is maybe, maybe five days ago, six days ago, he looked at me and he said, he said, uh, you are the head of the family now. Now, we don't have much of a family left. It's just my sister and, my, and Sandy and myself. But um, that was on his mind and heart. And then after that, he shared, uh, he looked at me and he said, you've been a good son. Yeah, which was uh, good final words to hear from him. And then the next day when I went to visit him, he shared one last thing. Uh, and after that, he just stopped conversing with everyone and kind of just withdrew. But the last thing he shared with me was this. He said, he had kind of a thoughtful look on his face, and he said, I've been contemplating my life. And then there was a pause, and he said, I didn't do a very good job. So there was a little bit of self-awareness there. But in terms of his relationship with the Lord... He was born into a Catholic family, Roman Catholic family, and the culture surrounding him in, on the bayou was almost 100% Roman Catholic. But he never personally embraced it. 
he didn't, he didn't have fond memories of his Catholic upbringing, and he seemed to make uh, serious efforts to avoid it and disconnect from it as much as possible. Uh, once I was saved at, at age 24, I specifically sought him out and started a conversation with him about my experience and what had happened to me. He listened for a few minutes, and he wasn't antagonistic, and he wasn't, uh, he wasn't insulting about what had happened to me, but he very quickly shut down the conversation and made it clear that he wasn't interested in talking anymore about it. Um, over the years, so that was 24, I'm now 68. Obviously, I've been walking with the Lord all of those years. He was not. Uh, he knew that I had become a pastor. Um, he was respectful about what I did, but uh, he never showed any interest. I invited him many times to come and, and just visit the church and see what I did for a living, see what my life was all about, uh, have an opportunity to hear me uh, proclaim the word of God. He never took me up on the invitation, never came, never visited the church. Um, in the last few years, there was a long time where I didn't really push it. I didn't really press in to talk to him anymore because he had made his, his attitude and perspective toward spiritual things clear. But in the last few years, as I saw him growing closer to his end point, I made several more efforts to talk to him about the Lord. I was always, every time I would go to visit, I would pray before I would walk in the door and I would ask the Lord to just make me alert to any opportunities that might happen in the conversation. And in all of those last uh, few years, the closest he ever got, and this was maybe like three years ago, maybe five at the most, I remember one conversation where there was a, I don't, I don't even remember how it unfolded, but it was like a golden opportunity to start a conversation about eternity and about the Lord. And when I did, he listened for maybe five minutes to what I was sharing. And then he ended the conversation with this. He said, um, I wish I could believe like you do, but I can't. And it was in those words, I can't, that I understood that you know, his heart was hardened toward the Lord and toward the things of the Lord and that I wasn't going to be able to uh, break through that hardened shell uh, unless the Lord himself did. Um, he died, as far as I know, uh, right up to the very end, he died with an empty heart and with no assurance of any, any relationship with the Lord, any true knowledge of the Lord, any, certainly any salvation experience with the Lord. Let me share this passage from Philippians chapter 3. This is from Paul the Apostle's personal testimony. And it's really a testimony of a believer, but it, I, I want to offer it in contrast to my father's testimony. Paul wrote this in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, as Paul was himself looking back on his life that had come before, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order 
that I may gain Christ. I had shared briefly that my dad had a long and very interesting life, and you heard some of the interesting uh, parts of that story. But at the end, from my evaluation, and I believe from a truly biblical evaluation, I can say that my father lived an ultimately empty and wasted life. He was, a, he was what the culture would consider to be a good man. He treated people with respect. He treated me with respect and care. And, and, and he uh, never committed, as far as I know, any of the, the biggest of sins that can be committed. Never murdered anyone. Never committed adultery. Never stole from anyone. Um, you know, the, the, the things that even the Ten Commandments um, direct our attention and our heart's attention to be concerned about. But again, he lived his life ultimately for himself and not at all with the Lord and certainly not at all for the Lord. So what I want to do is I want to end this with a poem. I didn't write the poem. It was written by a missionary in the early 1900s. Uh, He was a missionary to China, and uh, he served with Hudson Taylor in the China Inland Mission. Later, he went to India as the Lord led and eventually ended in Africa and died in his mission to Africa. His name was C.T. Studd. He wrote a famous poem. One time, years and years and years ago, I shared this with the church, but I wouldn't expect most of you to be familiar with it. And um, it's the story of what matters most in life. And it's not my dad's story, but I want to offer this in comparison and contrast to my dad's story because this is the only, what C.T. Studd is writing about in this poem is the only story that will ultimately matter. And I, 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 it was on my heart to share this about my dad, but to share it primarily for the benefit of especially of the youngest ones among us, you know, from the Ecclesiastes passage, Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Uh, my dad did not. He failed to remember his creator in the days of his youth, and he failed to remember his creator in the days of his maturity, and he failed to remember his creator even on his deathbed. And that is the greatest failure of his life. Here's C.T. Studd's poem. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Let me just jump in and say, you know, I I have this awareness more and more as I'm getting older, just how quickly... And it seems when you're 10 years old that life is stretching on forever and even a single hour is, is difficult to manage because it's so long. But in my latter years, I'm so aware that uh, life goes by so, so, so quickly. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet, and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. 
Only one life, the still, small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for uh, the time that I had with my father here on earth. And I certainly trust you with his circumstance as he stands before your throne. I know you are a just God and you will judge righteously on that day. And I want to thank you, Lord, for those of us who are here and still alive and still breathing. We do so only by your grace and hopefully only for your purposes. I pray especially, Lord, for the young ones among us that they would remember you in the days of their youth and that a relationship would form with you by your grace that would cause their lives to be far more meaningful and purposeful than my earthly father's ever was. Thank you, Lord, for your grace upon our hearts. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. God bless everyone.